All right, let's continue. Now, chapter four, the fifth vision of Zechariah. This one is essentially about Zerubbabel, who is mentioned in verses six, seven, nine, and 10. And the associated ministry, the, the implications of his work and ministry among the people as the governor or prince of Judah under the Persians. Just as the previous chapter, chapter three, focused on Joshua the high priest and his relationship to the branch in chapter three, verse eight, and the stone who is also the branch in chapter three, verse nine. This, this uh, vision in chapter four is primarily about Zerubbabel. These two visions go together in that the previous one dealt with the office of high priest or the priesthood, and chapter four deals with the office of king or the kingship. And of course, the one who fulfills both offices in one person, ideally, perfectly, is Christ. Both Joshua and Zerubbabel in their offices and responsibilities, they are typological of Christ. Now, let's unpack what's happening here. The, the focal point of this whole chapter is most likely verse 6, chapter 4, verse 6, and also we might say chapter 4, verse 14, where the two offices are both mentioned in verse 14. But first, the, the of greatest importance is perhaps verse 6. All right, now back to verse 1. The angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who is awakened from his sleep. Presumably, when prophets are deep in their contemplation about visions and also whenever they are sleeping, this is often when God reveals his word to them and then arouses them out of sleep in order to explain further the oracle to them. We see a couple of examples of this in Jeremiah 31, 26. Jeremiah 31, 26, he says, At this I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. God revealed that vision in chapter 31 while he was asleep. Then he awoke and realized that it was a night vision. Another one is in Luke 9. At the Mount of Transfiguration, the following is said. And the Transfiguration was a vision. It was while they were awake and daytime, but it's still in a sense of vision in that it's an appearance of the glory of God. Well, in Luke 9, 32, it says, Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. It's not unusual, therefore, for God to both announce his word and then reveal the interpretation of his word in relation to sleep. Verse two, and he said to me, what do you see? And I said, 
I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold with its bowl on the top of it, and its seven lamps on it, with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. He sees a lampstand made of gold. There's a bowl on the top of it. And then there are seven lamps on the bowl and then seven spouts. And the spouts belong to each of the lamps. Seven lamps and seven spouts. This most likely has to do with the congregation of the Lord. The lampstand itself, a symbol of the congregation or assembly of the Lord, God's people. This is the case in Revelation 1 verse 20, where John the Apostle also saw a vision. It's described in verses 9 to 20 and in verse 13 it says in the middle of the lamb stands one like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his breast with a golden girdle in the midst of the lamp stands was the son of man and that's Christ well then in verse 20 revelation 120 it says as for the mystery Of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Well, if the seven lampstands are the seven churches, those churches mentioned in chapters 2 and 3, then it may well be, it makes the most sense to take Lampstand in Zechariah 4.2 to be the congregation of the Lord, which is, uh, which is connected to the lamps and it has a supply of oil and that's why it has spouts. Spouts supplying oil for the wicks and keeping this lampstand lit up. Verse 3 now, Zechariah 4.3. Also, Two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. There are two olive trees. We're going to encounter these two olive trees later in verses 11 to 14. This part of the vision is not explained until verses 11 to 14. Who these or what these two olive trees are next to the lampstand, one on each side. Well, meantime, we pick it up at verse 4, Zechariah 4, 4. Then I answered and said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. We notice that the answer is not given. The, the angel, the interpretive angel, is delaying in giving his answer because he wants to first explain the importance of verse 6 and even all the way up to verse 10. This intermediate explanation is necessary before he actually gets his answer. 
Verse six then, he says, then he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel saying, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. He wants Zerubbabel to know that what he's going to accomplish does not happen by might or power, but only by the Spirit of the Lord. My Spirit, who is also mentioned a couple of more times in Zechariah, like 7 verse 12, where he is called his Spirit. And they made their hearts like flint so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. And further in Zechariah twelve ten, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. The Holy Spirit is meant here in Zechariah 4.6. But what is the lesson? What is the main point of verse 6? Verse 6 is a common verse, or should be a common verse. It has been in the past. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The point is, Zerubbabel will not accomplish what is important and what is necessary by the will of God unless it is by the Holy Spirit. It's not going to be by human strength, human power. These words might and power are used of human strength, and even animal strength. And he's pointing out that that's not how God accomplishes his work. He uses human strength, but it's not because of human strength that anything is accomplished. In Psalm 33, 16 and 17, we have these terms used. Again, both of these words, might, and power or might and strength. Psalm 33 and verse 16. 16 and 17. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. It doesn't happen by a mighty army, great strength, the, even the great strength of a horse. Similar words are found in chapter or Psalm 20. Psalm 20 and verse 7. 20 verse 7. Some boast in chariots and some in horses but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Not in horses, not in chariots, but in the name of the Lord. Further, Psalm 147, 147 and verse 10. 
Psalm 147, verse 10. We'll read 10 and 11. He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He does not take pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord favors those who fear him, those who wait for his loving kindness. Also, Proverbs 21, 31. 21, 31. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. Victory belongs to the Lord. He does not trust in man's wisdom. In fact, anyone who trusts in man has a curse on him. Isaiah 30. Isaiah 30, verses 1 to 5. The prophet says, Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan, but not mine, and make an alliance, but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me, to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt, your humiliation. For their princes are at Zoan and their ambassadors arrive at Haines. Everyone will be ashamed because of a people who cannot profit them, who are not for help or profit, but for shame and also for reproach. It does no good to trust in man and man's strength. Jeremiah 17, Jeremiah 17, 5 to 8. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert, and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream, and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green, and it will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. It's no good to trust in man. But also, we ought to note that when the Spirit is with us, we will have victory. When the Spirit is with us, he who is with us is greater than all the forces of men. Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles 32 7 and 8. Second Chronicles 32, 7 and 8. Hezekiah has Sennacherib, king of Assyria, besieging him or about to besiege him. And this is what it says. Second Chronicles 32, 7. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria nor because of all the multitude which is with him. For the one with us 
is greater than the one with him. With him is only an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people relied on the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Second Kings chapter 6. Second Kings chapter 6. Not only do we have the Holy Spirit and God, Holy Spirit dwelling in us, and God as our helper. Second Kings 6.16 also shows 16 and 17 that God has many armies or many chariots of angels to help us. Second Kings 6.16. So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And then they get the victory because God is with them. It says also in 1 John 4, 4, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. 1 John 4, 4. So the first major point for Zerubbabel and for Zechariah and the people is to realize that they must rely on the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord, and not themselves. Next is verses 7 and 8, or, or 7, verse 7, that they should have faith. They should have faith. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Now we have another addressee. We have a great mountain. Who are you, O great mountain? This great mountain will become a plain before Zerubbabel. This great mountain is likely either antagonistic people and the circumstances they bring about. Oh, well, likely that's what it is. Not just uh, the people, but the circumstances, the dilemmas and trials that they bring on us. That is likely what he means by great mountain, because in relation to Zerubbabel laying the foundation of the house of the Lord, verse 9, and then also seeing it to completion, verse 9, we do have a parallel in the book of Ezra. In the book of Ezra, we'll first start at Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Ezra 4, 1 to 5. He's portraying their difficulties as a very large mountain. Uh, and before we actually do read Ezra 4, 1 to 5, in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 51, 25, Babylon is called 
a destroying mountain, which means that people or nations or kings are symbolized as a mountain, uh, something that is huge, hard to move, hard to change, but God can change. God can deliver from the destroying mountain or the great mountain. So the great mountain in the days of Ezra, Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, Haggai, Joshua the priest, Ezra chapter four, verse one. Now, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of father's households and said to them, let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' households of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. These are the enemies, and they were successful in frustrating the plans to build a temple from the time of Cyrus to Darius, which would be about 539 B.C., to about 520 or 518 BC. So there was about an 18 year period, um, 18 to 20 year period. Now look at Ezra 5, 1 and 2. When the prophets Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them, then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Jehoshadak arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. There was a halt to it, but now the work resumes. And then by the time we reach Ezra 6, 13, Ezra 6, 13 to 15, also by means of the Words of Zechariah and Haggai, 6.13. Then Tetanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozanai and their colleagues carried out the decree with all diligence, just as King Darius had sent. And the elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. And they finished building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this temple was completed on the third day of the month Adar. It was the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. This is the mountain that they had to overcome. And they were able to make the mountain a plain, flatland. And not only that, according to Zechariah 4.7, it says, And he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. He, Zerubbabel, will also 
bring forth or lay the top stone, that is the final stone, on the temple as a symbol of completion and his leadership in the completion of it. And it's not only that he lays the foundation, we see this in verse 9, he lays the foundation, but his hands will finish it. Finishing it is related to the top stone of verse 7. He lays the foundation and he also finishes it. Verse uh, verse 7, where it says that when this top stone is laid, there will be shouts of grace, grace to it. This echoes what happened when the foundation was laid in Ezra 3, Ezra 3, 10 and 11. In Ezra 3, 10 and 11, this is what happened when the foundation was laid. And he's prophesying that it will also be done when the final stone, the top stone is laid. 3, 10 of Ezra. Now, when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So the people had um, shouted with a great shout when the foundation was laid and the same will happen, the same did happen when the top stone was laid. And this was such a large or, or loud shout. It says in 3.13 that the sound was heard far away. It was also mixed with weeping shouts of weeping, joy and weeping, but both were heard far away. Well, they also shout the right thing here. They shout grace because that would only be possible by the grace of God. They acknowledge that what they accomplish is only by the grace of God. And that grace is related to verse 6, my spirit. And in Zechariah 12.10, the spirit is called the spirit of grace and supplication. The spirit of grace and supplication. Everything that happens, anything that happens, is by the grace of God. That's how we should acknowledge it too, whenever anything good is accomplished. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. James 1, 17. Verse 8. Also the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. 
Zerubbabel is the one who will both start it and finish it as God's agent. And when this happens, that it started and finished, then they will know, they will trust in the Lord's word. They will know that God has indeed spoken and he has fulfilled his word because everything happens according to his word, his purposes as revealed in his word. We also come across this expression that after it happens, then you will know. And this is most likely since it is the word of the Lord speaking in verse 8. The word of the Lord came to me saying, and then in verse 9, the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The me most likely is the living word speaking the spoken word to Zechariah. And once that is accomplished, Zerubbabel starts and finishes the temple. Then they will have confidence that Zechariah has the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord did come to Zechariah. Verse 10 now. For who has despised the day of small things? The previous verses have to happen because of God's Spirit and faith. God's Spirit and faith. We should also note, uh, in reference to verse 7, let's actually read Matthew 21, 18. Matthew 21, 18 to 22. Matthew 21, 18. Christ, he enters the city and curses the fig tree and then teaches a lesson. 21, 18. Now in the morning when he returned to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there be any fruit from you um, ever. And at once the fig tree withered. And seeing this, the disciples marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you shall not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it shall happen. And everything you ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. This is similar to what we're seeing here in verses 6 7, 8, 9, especially 7, 8, and 9, with this mountain becoming a plain, being uprooted, and that is said in advance so that we might believe it before it actually happens. And then when it does happen, we shout grace, grace to it. All right, now returning to Zechariah 4.10. He says, for who has despised the day of small things? This is a challenge to those who would despise God's work when God does small things. We have to understand or be reminded. Remember we said in 
Ezra 3, that there was a shout of joy and a shout of weeping because the people who were old enough to see the first temple that was destroyed, that was the Solomon, that was a, the great temple that Solomon built. It was large, it was luxurious, it was well decked inside. But this temple was meager and small compared to it. So there would be people who would despise a small work of God. But this is a challenge not to do so. Don't despise the small things of God. Whatever God does is good, even if it is small. Christ in Luke 12, 32, Luke 12, 32 called his disciples little flock. He called them little flock. In James, James chapter 2 and verse 5, James 2, 5, he says, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? The poor of the world God has chosen to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, right? And these are the ones he promised to those who love him. He promised these graces to those who love him. The poor. The poor are the ones who are the despised. Also, 1 Corinthians 1, 26. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. The makeup of the church is described here. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the, the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. God chooses the small, despised things, the foolish things that the world considers foolish and shameful. He chooses them so that no one, no man, can boast before God. Verse 29, 1 Corinthians 1, 29. That's the same as Zechariah chapter 4, because if it's not happening by might nor by power, and it's happening by his spirit, then no one can boast. No man can boast. Now we come to more interpretation. Interpretation of the vision. Zechariah 4.10. But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. The seven are said to um, be like the seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. 
The 7 of verse 2, probably the same as the 7 of verse 10, will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. And these seven are the eyes of the Lord. The Lord will delight in using Zerubbabel to measure, to make sure that his temple is completed properly. Because a plumb line is meant to make sure that surfaces are perpendicular, as they ought to be in buildings. And Zerubbabel will have that in his hand as a symbol that God is working through him to make sure that all things happen according to his will. And God will be pleased because his eyes will see, since his eyes will not only be overseeing this work, but his eyes see what what happens throughout the whole earth. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. Proverbs 15, 3. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. 2 Chronicles 16, 9. More assurances that God is present. No one can flee from his spirit. No one can hide, nor can anyone ward off his hand or, and say to him, what have you done? Daniel 4.35. Verse 11. Verse 11. Then I answered and said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on its left? Once more, we see that this is not answered yet. It's not answered yet. He's asking again, Zechariah the prophet is asking, what are the two olive trees? And I answered the second time and said to him, what are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden oil from themselves? We see the olive branches from the two olive trees supplying through two golden pipes golden oil that empty into the lampstand to supply the lampstand with its necessary fuel to keep burning. Who are the two olive trees? Verse 13. So he answered me saying, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. The Lord of the whole earth is there. The olive trees are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. The two anointed ones If we're talking about the immediate context, that would be Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the governor, who is a prince of Judah. But who would their offices represent? 
Their offices represent Christ because Christ is the only one, aside from Melchizedek in Genesis 14, who held the office of both king and priest. No king was allowed to be a priest. No priest was allowed to be a king. Kings were sometimes prophets. Sometimes they were priests. Sometimes they were neither. They were laymen. But they, the king could not be a priest and the priest could not be a king. Only Christ. The two were anointed with oil when they were installed to office. But only Christ could hold both offices in one person. This is actually what we see in 6.13. Actually, let's read 6.12 and 13. 6.12 of Zechariah. Then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, It is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices. He's going to be a priest on the throne, on a royal throne. And... There will be peace between the office of king and priest. There will not be conflicts, battles going on, power struggles between the two, because one man, one person, one Christ will hold both offices and be at peace with himself. So in Zechariah 4.14, the Lord of the whole earth He is the one who supplies and ordains the ministry of the priest and the king. He anoints them. He empowers them. And they are commissioned to serve the people. The priests to teach the people. The king to rule the people in righteousness. This is the vision that Zechariah sees that the Lord is behind the leadership of the nation whose leadership must properly fulfill their duties because they are appointed by God and empowered by God. They should live in faith. They should trust God and do the will of God for the people of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.